have your Bible with me to uh, Acts chapter 8. We are in the book of Acts, studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are now in chapter 8. And it's a really cool chapter. It's a, it's a chapter of transition, and you'll see what I mean as we begin to go through this. Remember, the book of Acts is um, the historical account of the moving of the Holy Spirit in and through the early church. Um, it's really a, 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 a book of Acts, not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, and <clears throat> we see some really cool transitional stuff. And so as we make our way into chapter 8, I want to point out that um, chapters 4 through 8 are very closely related to each other in that um, they build upon one another, and they lead us to see <clears throat> the how and the why for what we read next, and what we read next is that the early church, the believers there in the early church in Jerusalem, they eventually fled Jerusalem, and we should know why they did that, the, the, the how and the why for why they, they left Jerusalem. Remember back in chapter 4, we began to be told about problems that were rising up in the early church. Problems, first of all, from attacks on the outside, as there was persecution by the religious leaders. Um, and the uh, uh, council of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, those same people who had um, uh, arrested Jesus Christ and put him to death were now coming against the, the work of the Holy Spirit. They were opposing the work of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes some of the apostles and others, as we read, were being arrested, and they were being threatened and um, other things like that. But in, verse, in chapter 5, we were also told about problems that came from within the church. There were problems outside of the church, and much like today, problems also within the church that they were dealing with. And to deal with these problems, <clears throat> the elders, um, first of all, the, the apostles brought um, the news of what was going on with the persecution, and the church prayed, uh, uh, asked God to give them boldness in the face of this persecution to continue to speak God's word. Even though there was opposition, they knew there was much opportunity and they wanted to utilize this opportunity and they needed God's power and, and, and God's courage to do so. And with the problems that were going on on the inside of the church, the, they appointed seven men, we're told, as deacons, literally servant leaders. That's what that word means. Um, uh, it's the word doulos in the Greek. Servant leaders to help lead and oversee not only the day-to-day tasks of the church, but also administrate some of the things that were going on uh, to see that everyone was being treated fairly, um, that things were, 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 were going smoothly in accordance to what God's Word said in the leadership of the apostles. And we know that from this group of seven men <clears throat> who were chosen to oversee these administrative parts of the church, two are mentioned by name, and that's who we were focusing on last week and then again this week in chapter 7 and 8, these two men, a man First of all, by the name of Stephen, and then another man by the name of Philip. Men of faith, we're told. Men who were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And in chapters 6 through 8, we really are given more information about these two men. Specific things they did, things that happened to them. And sadly, with Stephen, we saw that he was arrested. He was brought before this Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. After he had been preaching the gospel message to a specific group of men who were associated with this one synagogue, these were leaders in, in the synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen is what we're told. And we understand that these men um, who were resisting the Holy Spirit, they arrested Stephen because we are told 
that they could not compete with the wisdom that Stephen had spoken. They were, they were hardening their hearts against the work of God, the truths of God that were being made known to them. And they, they, couldn't, they couldn't make a case against what Stephen was saying. And rather than surrender to it, um, it says that they, they, they became angry inside. And so Stephen was turned over. And um, the Sanhedrin, uh, this, this council, and these same men <clears throat> raised up uh, evil men, is what we're told, to testify falsely against Stephen. But Stephen responded to these false allegations uh, in a very godly way. We read that he used this opportunity to tell and testify of Jesus Christ again before this council. And when we look back historically over this, it's kind of an amazing thing that God would give these very men who condemned Christ to death, who turned Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified, that Jesus over or over and over again, God gave them the message, the good news message, and, and, and yet they hardened their hearts. They hardened their hearts. But we know as Stephen took this as an opportunity to share again about Jesus, he recalled, if you remember the nation's past rejection of, of, of those whom God had sent to them, to their leaders, and, and, and to these deliverers that God raised up. And Stephen said, you always have done this, and you're doing this now. And he used these historical examples to compare to Jesus and point out that the nation was once again re rejecting Jesus, the just one, more importantly in all of that, the one who had been sent to, by God as the Messiah, as the deliverer, the one to redeem them and to set them free. But these religious leaders, these Jews, they were like the, 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 um, the uh, freedmen from the, from the synagogue of freedmen, these religious leaders there, these councils, says they were cut to the heart and they were filled with rage. And in their rage, they, they, when we look at it like this, it's mind-blowing, but they took a man who loved God, a humble man. He said his face was like an angel before them. Full of faith, full of power of the Holy Spirit. They seized him, they took him outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they brutally stoned him to death, taking their coats off, picking up these rocks off the ground, and throwing them at him until he was dead. Sadly, it was this vicious murder. This was the inspiration, if you will, that brought forth this great persecution that we now read about in chapter 8 upon the early church. And um, we're told in chapter 8, that as a result of this great persecution, many who believed, those who were in Jerusalem over this period of time, since the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when that promise was, was given by God, that, that these, these men and women were scattered all across Israel. And Philip, right, one of the seven, would be appointed as a servant overseer, a servant leader, was one of these men who fled. That's who we read of next. He fled the persecution, and it's interesting that he will talk about Perhaps why he made his way to Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans, that's the people group that he went to. And he there preached Jesus Christ to them. So as we begin to read now in chapter 8, verse 1, I'm going to pray. And then we'll look at what God's word says. And Father, as we, as we pray, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, um, who came to us as a, as a little child, an infant, Lord. You sent him into this world to become human, to endure all the things that we endured, to be tempted as, as we are, are tempted, and yet he was without sin, perfect and holy, and, and, and grew up, Lord, to, to teach us about you, to example a better way, and then to give his life for us. And we thank you for that. And as we're in this season, Lord, where we remember and celebrate 
I pray, God, that the joy and peace that we're reminded that we have through your son, Jesus, Lord, would radiate into the lives of those around us. Father, I pray as we study your word, these first eight verses of chapter eight, read about Stephen and the working of your Holy Spirit in him and through him and what you were doing in the early church, even in the midst of the persecution, the attacks that the enemy was bringing, Lord. May you help us to see and be encouraged, Father, that, that even in the midst of, of those things that go on in our own lives that are difficult, that you have a great plan, you have a great purpose. And Father, that we may walk according to your will and not our own will. Lord, that we might not settle for the temporal things of this life that don't satisfy. But Lord, that we would live for eternity, that we would have our minds set on eternity, that we would walk in the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. And of course, this is talking about Stephen, who we read about there at the end of chapter 7. And then it says, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, the church there which was at Jerusalem. That's an indication not only of where the persecution was directed initially, but where the church was. The church up to this point was in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. I love that last verse as it kind of sums up the result of what was going on with the work of God. Great joy was in that city, and I think that's appropriate for us to see in light of this time of year, as I shared with the first service, this time of year is where, where so many people, even non-believers, right, people in the secular world are like, we just want peace. We just want, want joy. Good tidings to all, right? You know, that's kind of the sentiment around that this holiday season, but, but we know, we know that true peace and true joy cannot be found apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And we'll get there at the end of our study, but as we begin and look at these first verses, um, look at this next chapter, it, it begins with a second mention of a man by the name of Saul, a man who we will later be told has a conversion there on the road to Damascus, it became known as Paul and uh, is, is known now as the apostle to the Gentiles by his, own, by his own admission. And even though we're not given the details, we gather from what we had read back here in chapter 7, verse 58. You can look at that verse if you just want to bump back up a little bit, that this Saul, in some way, in some fashion, and we can speculate looking back upon who Saul was at this time and what was going on, but he was clearly a participant in Stephen's death. But now we're told a little bit more as we read here that he had consented to Stephen's death. And, and I think this consenting is a very intriguing word as it describes really the attitude that Saul had towards believers at this time. When you see the English translation of this word consent is probably not strong enough to describe what was really going on in Saul's heart as our English words are kind of a watered-down um, version of what was really being um, conveyed in the Greek. And the Greek word 
that's used here is suneo dukio. And it, it, it translates to this word consent, and it means this. It means to approve, and even more so, to be pleased with. And I think that shines a, a whole different light on it. The point is this, is that Saul was not a reluctant spectator. We see that he was there outside present, consenting that the men who picked up the stones even laid down their coats at Saul's feet, perhaps indicating that he is some kind of caretaker of their, their outer garments while they went about this, this murder of, uh, 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 of Stephen. Um, but he was not reluctant in this. Rather, what we see here as it says that he is consenting is that he took pleasure in what took place and took pleasure later on in attacking Christians. Pleasure. But even though Saul was approving and pleased to have Stephen killed, we see that his involvement in the actual killing was limited, right? We know that from what we read beyond the speculative part of it. However, we read later on that Saul went on. This is what we know to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Saul went on to be a zealot for the Jewish religion as he became one of the leaders who brought a relentless, what we're told, and great persecution against the early church. And I point this out because we see that Saul went from, as we look at how this might apply to our own lives and consider Saul, we see that Saul went from a man who was willing to stand by. I think there's a lot of Christians that stand by today. We stand by at the evils we see going on in this world. We say nothing and we do nothing. And that may be minimizing Paul's involvement at this point, but nevertheless, this is true. He stood by. He was a man who was willing to stand by and watch Christians be persecuted. And he moved from that place ultimately to a man who would put Jesus' disciples in prison and, 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 and kill them with his own hand. But after Saul's miraculous conversion to Christianity, he would write to the early church and at the end of the book of Acts with regret about what he had done, having taken an active role in the persecution of God's church. One such place is in the book of Galatians, and it blows my mind because Paul's writing to the Galatians about God's grace, and he's really using his own life and testimony as an example of God's grace. He says, look at what God's done for me, the grace that God's shown me. He said, and he wrote in verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That was his heart. That was his desire to destroy the church of God there in Jerusalem. And also in Acts chapter 22, verse 3 through 5, Paul going into more detail, he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamil taught according to the strictness of our Father's law and was zealous towards God as you are all today. I persecuted this way, referring to Christianity and those who were following Jesus Christ. He says, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both of men and women, as also the high priest bears witness of me and the council of elders from whom I, now, from whom I also received the letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. He said, what we're reading of now with this great dispersion of, of, of early Christians, Paul said, he said, I chased after them. 
those who fled for their lives. I hunted them down and brought them back to be punished. And in Acts chapter 26, Paul says, he says, this I also did in verses 10 and 11 in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received the authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often. Think of his language here. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And I believe that these words of Paul are important for us to pay attention to because there's an example for us in Paul. What we read of here and where he ended up going and the things he ended up doing because Paul examples the dangers for us of what we witness here, of hardening our hearts against God and against God's truths that are made known to us. Scripture is clear in, in telling us that, and you've heard it said before, and you've, re- you've heard me say it, and you've read it for yourself, right? Undeniably, the Bible says that you're either for God or against Him, right? There's no middle ground. As a matter of fact, Jesus writes to the early churches in the book of Revelation, and He speaks to the lukewarm church. He says, I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. But because you're not, I'm going to vomit you out. We get that idea, but let's look at it a little bit differently in light of what we read here. See, what we read here, there is also no room when it comes to a relationship with God or God's will or God's truths. There's no room to be standing on the sideline. I envision sometimes a football field, and and, and some of us think that that we're not engaging. We don't have to engage. We don't have to be on this side or that side, and, and not maybe in our lives as Christians, but in what God's asking us to do or what God tells us to do or standing up for what God says. And we go, I'm just going to stand here and, and, and watch from a distance. I'm going to stand on the sidelines. I'm going to let this play it out with me here in this safe place. But there's no standing in the sidelines. And this is what we see with Paul. He was standing back, watching, having some involvement. He was there. But, 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 but here's the truth. All are in the game. There's no sideline. We're for, we're against, we're in the game. And all that's to be determined really ultimately is whose team are you on? So are you for God? Are you for His plans? Are, for, are you for the things that he says is true and right and good and noble and praiseworthy? Or are you against God, his plans and his purposes? And I think this is a question we all must be asked and, and, and ultimately all must answer because here's, here's, here's what we see. Here's the warning. When we harden our heart against God's will and against God, his will for this world, His will for our lives, things never get better. If you envision yourself somehow standing on the sideline, it doesn't get better in any way. In fact, what happens like it did in Paul's case is that things always go from bad to worse. And Paul went from bad to worse because he resisted. Why? Ultimately, the leading of the Holy Spirit. He was hearing the same messages that were being spoken. The truths of the good news message. He had probably seen Jesus Christ in the flesh more than once. Not just hearing of what he had done, but seeing. And now having the Holy Spirit continue to testify to him through men like Stephen and men like Philip. And Paul went from bad to worse because he resisted the Holy Spirit who was revealing the truth of Jesus to him and leading him to put his faith and hope in him, in Jesus. But because Paul refused the Holy Spirit, we, saw, we see here that he went 
if you will, from being the bench warmer to being the team captain. As he, by his own admission, took this active role, this active position against God as he ran onto Satan's playing field by hunting, imprisoning, and murdering Christians. And, and, and sadly, I have, to, I have to relate this because it's there. Sadly, the same thing is, is true for each one of us. And, and I know in my own person, personal journey of faith, whether it was before I came to faith or even as I'm walking with the Lord and called to certain things, I know that in my own personal journey of faith, I remember in those times, and I remember very distinctly when I was not following after God, and I was resisting His will, and as a result, the sinful things that I, I, I was doing before I came to Christ, not only did they grow in number, they grew in, in depravity or in wickedness, right? Things that that even by a, a, a perverse standard, things I would, I, I swore that I would never do. I would do that, but I won't. I wouldn't do that. Those people are so much worse. And 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 sadly, the the more I hardened my heart against God, the more I resisted the truth and resisted God's will for my life. You know what? I did those things, and maybe you too, did those things that I said I would never do. And I continued to do them, and I did all kinds of other things, that, things that I, I now regret as I kept resisting the Holy Spirit who was calling me to turn away from my sin and turn to God. You guys, listen, it's not just a salvation issue. It's not a, was I, not, was I walking and now I'm not walking and I am walking with the Lord now. It's not that. Even in our Christian walk, God's constantly revealing truth to us and He's saying, step into the field, live in this place, stand in these truths, take action, apply it to your life. Don't harden your heart. Don't resist. And so these same truths, it, 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 there's no neutral ground. And so in light of this, we should all see that Stephen's message in his death was an opportunity from God. Again, as we look at the whole of the picture, the whole of the account, it was an opportunity again for Paul to turn to God and be a part of the work that, was God, that God was doing. But he resisted God at this time, and he hardened his heart, and he ended up doing far worse things than what he had done here, things we know that he would later regret, where he would even write to the early church and he would say, I am the chief of all sinners. I believe he believed that. I don't think he was being figurative or using hyperbole, hyperbole to make a point, exaggerating things. I believe that Paul, based upon what he did and how he actively pursued the church and came against Jesus Christ, he said at some point, even with some ignorance, um, and, 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 and I'm not judging that part of it, he says, I'm the chief I'm it. When it comes to kings of sinners, I'm the king of sinners, Paul said. With regret and lament and sorrow and heartache. And so the question to ask in light of, of this is, is what is it, what is it that God has allowed to come into our lives as an is 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 really is is an opportunity for us to turn to Him? What is it that God's allowed to, for 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 you? to enter into your life, for me to enter my life, that is an opportunity to, to turn to Him, to turn away from sin, to turn away from the world, to turn to His will for our lives. You see, God's calling each of us to be a part of what He's doing here on this earth. But will we harden our heart to Him, or will we answer the call? Will we go, I think I'm going to stand on the sidelines. It doesn't work. That's not a spot for us. And the truth is, is that God will give us many opportunities. I'm blown away as I read through the book of Acts about the long-suffering nature of, of Jesus Christ as the, the church here in Jerusalem was a constant witness before these same religious leaders, men like Paul, 
um, and others, so many others, the high priest, you know, to repent over and over again. Here's the truth, repent. Turn to me. And God is long-suffering. But when we refuse through the process, ultimately we see, well, well, Saul gave his life to the Lord, right? It all worked out good in the long, in the long run. But just think about the damage that he brought upon himself and ultimately the havoc that he brought into the lives of those around him through that period of time and where we run the risk of doing the same thing, damaging those around us, bringing damage into our own lives because we go, my way's better and God's way needs to be somewhere else down the road is what we say. And as far as this damage, this is what we read of in verse 3 as we're told that Paul made havoc of the church and brought damage. And the Greek word, I love this word as it is expound in the Greek because in verse 3 it's the word lumaeneha and it's used to describe, envision this, the actions of a wild animal that has been wounded. And I think we all get graphic imagery of that in our minds when we see this and this is a good image of how Paul acted towards the church like a wounded animal. Lashing out. But as we read on, we see that God took these things that Satan intended for evil, as he always does, and he used them for good. Romans 8, 28, right? We all know that things, all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And I read that again by way of remembrance because this is a great promise. And it's something we should be meditating on. And in light of this, we, might, we, might, we, we must, we, we have to rightly conclude as we look at what we read here and read the result of it, we have to conclude this, that God is a sovereign God. That's what we conclude here. Even in the midst of this great persecution, even in the midst of this opposition, with the church being spread out as a result of it, God's sovereign, His plans cannot be changed. Meaning Satan may be powerful, but he's not all-powerful. Like God, in fact, as is seen here, God uses the evil works and tensions of the enemy to further His own good work. And this means that in our own lives there will be times when there is much havoc. You ever had havoc? Times when it appears like the, the enemy is having his way with us. Where we're like, God, do you, not, do you not see what's going on here? Do you not see what I'm going through? But we must remember that God's in control. That's one of the things that's essential to pick out from what we're reading here. God is in control through all of this. This is a fulfillment of His plans and purposes and they're being worked out for His good. And God will work together all things for good for us who love Him even in those times when we're in the midst of these havoc situations. And I say this because we can often find ourselves in those situations and not in the immediate, with our own limited vision, right, find a reason for why the things are so rough. God, I know you're in control. I know you're working good. But I sure don't see it right now from my perspective. And faith is required in those moments. And the faith comes back to these truths that we profess and what have been given to us to stand upon to see us and carry us through. Why can it be so hard, God? Why is it so hard? But what Scripture tells us and, and what this situation examples to us is this, these truths, once again, persecutions, trials, and tribulations will always bring forth God's will, and these same things will always, in turn, bring forth godly fruit. God will bring a harvest in us and through us in these situations. 
as we put our faith and hope in God. Paul writes to the Romans about this, right? Five Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, right, being made right before God, being brought right into a right relationship with God, by faith we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and rejoice in the hope of glory of God. That's pretty good stuff. But Paul goes on, and he says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Also good things. Fruit. God's work. God's will. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And ultimately he's saying you don't have to be disappointed in this and the hope that it produces because we know ultimately God who loves us is in control and he's manifesting his love into our lives and into our world in these things. And trial by fire is, is God's tool of refinement in our lives. We talk about that a lot as we come to passages of scripture like this. And furthermore, trials are often, we know God's training ground where we practice and, and endure and persevere, and in the end it will produce good things in us and through us. And as we look at this in relationship to what we read now, the early church and the, prosecu- the persecution that, that, that came, it brought great suffering. That's not to just be overlooked. There was a great suffering that came upon the early church. And Paul details kind of what that looked like. People were being arrested. People were being put into death. People were being tortured to the point where they would blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. But in all of it, ultimately, all of this suffering, all this persecution brought forth good things. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip, one of the seven, right, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord, they heeded, they received the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was the culmination of all of this great joy in that city. Now, real quick, when we, when we consider the, the events, and I mean not just these events, all of the events recorded in the book of Acts, when we step back and look at it, we see that roughly... It covers a, a time frame um, of about 30 years. When you begin in Jerusalem with the, with the uh, 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 death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and the promise of the Holy Spirit being year one and go all the way on in until Paul's arrest and transportation to, to Rome and where it kind of ends there with some stuff, 30 years is being accounted and detailed for us by Luke. And I point that out because... I don't have time to go into the, 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 the historical timeline of events that we deduct from, from people who we read about and events that we read about here in, in the book of Acts, um, but approximately six years has passed from the day of Pentecost until what we read of here now. Six years. And now think about that. 
During these six years, the church, for the most part, thrived in Jerusalem. They had some, 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 some opposition, some persecution, some normal problems that were being dealt with on the inside. But for the most part, they said that they were breaking bread, heeding to the apostles' doctrine, baptizing people in the name of Jesus, going from house to house, having barbecues and eating together, fellowshipping together, meeting together and where the apostles would teach it was thriving and then people were in love with christ and they were selling their stuff so that they could all live in this common way as they were truly and wholeheartedly waiting for the return of jesus christ and now these christians were forced to do what they had been we see reluctant to do what is that to get the message of jesus christ out to the surrounding regions remember jesus had commanded his disciples to be witness for him Starting in Jerusalem, right? And then from there going into Judea and into Samaria. And he said ultimately to all the ends of the earth. And we read, we read how now how it was the persecution that ultimately was the catalyst that brought forth God's will. That God had given them through the command of Jesus Christ there on the mount when Jesus ascended. Meaning it took persecution to get believers in Jerusalem to leave their place of comfort and obey God's command and go into Judea and Samaria. And I said this earlier, I'll say it again. I think that in the United States of America, within the church, as far as idolatry goes, the greatest single pagan thing that we do in relationship to idolatry is, is we worship comfort. People would say it's materialism. Well, we, we, we like on material things because it gives us comfort at the heart of it is his comfortableness and so much so that even within the church we make decisions on on what what how much we'll give of ourselves of or of our resources uh, not based upon what god asks or what god says to do but because whether or not we're comfortable to do so and yet we know that that from old testament examples even with the mosaic law even into the New Testament where we read in the, in the book of Romans and in other places that, that a living sacrifice is what God calls us to be. And, and when you think about that word sacrifice, sacrifice and comfort don't go hand in hand. You can't do ministry and follow after the Lord without sacrifice. You can't worship God without sacrifice. That's never changed as far as an example for us through the Mosaic Law on into the New Covenant that we have. We rest in Christ, but we're still called to lay our lives down for the one who purchased it. This is not my own. The things that He's given me are not my own. And He calls me to make sacrifices for Him and for His kingdom. Comfort cannot be the deciding factor on what I do and when I do it and how much I do or don't do. And, and the early church was, in this sense, in a place of comfort. And God said, let's make it a little uncomfortable. And as we consider these next verses, we see that, that the result of the persecution was threefold, right? We would think, man, look at this awful persecution. Look what happened to them. But, but what God's word says that through it, good came. Look, number one, if you're taking notes, first the church was scattered all across Israel. That was God's will. That was God's plan. That was part of God's command. Secondly, the word of God is preached everywhere. And multitudes heeded the message that Philip spoke. And then lastly, in verse 8, we're told that great joy was in Samaria. And the, and the Greek word used here for scattered is the word dispora. We get the word dispersion. And, and it's a word that's really rooted in, 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 um, in, in agriculture. 
It's an agricultural term that was used to describe how a farmer back then would plant his seeds in a field, pulling his seeds out of a bag and, and sowing them and scattering them upon the earth. And it's clear that God had done a good work in the lives of those who had, ca- had come to him in Jerusalem, right? Those who had put their faith in him and had been filled with the Holy Spirit. But now it was, it was time, when we consider the agricultural thinking and mindset here, it was time for these new believers who had been gathered together for six years, God said, now it's time to be harvested. You've been poured into, now I'm going to take the work that's been done in you, and I'm going to scatter it out across the rest of the world. Planted like a seed, and in turn, God said, I want more from you. I'm going to plant you, I'm going to harvest you, I'm going to, I'm going to scatter you, and then, and then you're going to produce fruit. And that's what we read. And as verse 4 begins, it begins with this word, therefore, and in doing so, we're being told clearly that it was because of the persecution that these believers were scattered and the word of God spread. And I believe that this word is so key and is so essential to pointing out because it's evidence, if you look at it here in this light, that God's in control. It's evidence of God's sovereign plan, his sovereign control, meaning this, that in spite of that satanic opposition that we're clearly reading about in the form of the great persecution that we read going on in the early church, the word of God grew. That's a God thing. It's clearly a God thing, and it illustrates an important biblical truth about how God is always leading us. Please hear this, because I know there are people who, who are here today that need to hear Need to hear this. Need to be reminded of this, man. Listen, God's always leading us from a place of victory. It wasn't as if Satan attacked and there was this great persecution. All of a sudden, Saul was on on the scene and God's like, Oh no, what am I going to do? Retreat, retreat. Let's gather back and figure out what we're going to do next. God leads from a place of victory. He's never responding to or reacting from some defeat that we might perceive to be a defeat. And this is important to take note of because there are times when it can appear to us, through our limited vision, that there's been a defeat. That the enemy's gained some kind of ground into God's kingdom. But it was the Apostle Paul who would write about this and tell us that God leads us from a place of victory as he makes himself known to this world through us. First, Second Corinthians 2. Verse 14, he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuse the fragrance of his own knowledge in every place. And so in light of this, hear this, there's only one conclusion that that can be made. And we must conclude that God is a triumphant commander who leads us into and through the battles we face. And we can rest in the fact that he has never and will never be defeated by any attack. He's not wounded. He's not injured. His plan is not deterred or deferred. You know, Jesus had promised in Matthew 16, 6 that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. We've talked about that already. And listen, as our goal, our goal as a fellowship with that in mind is modeled for us in what we read here in these first verses first eight verses we've talked about as as we go through the book of acts we should look at ourselves as a church congregation and go are we following this model is this the example that god's word gives us if not it's unbiblical for us to be doing we don't want to do a, a, a church model according to maybe what other churches are doing or according to even what 
you know, Sean, the pastor, might think, or any of the elders. We want to do church God's way. How has God modeled it? What has God said? And there's a model for us here by what we read in these first five verses, and I think it's summarized by what we put forth with these three words, win, disciple, and send. That's summarized by what I read here. Win a person to the Lord. Is that not what was going on? As the gospel message was being preached by the 120 that came out on the day of Pentecost, Peter speaking up and others witnessing beside him, God adding to the church daily those whom he saw fit to be saved, win a person to the Lord. And then we read really over this six-year period of time as they were taking heed to the apostles' doctrine in interaction as they gathered together from home to home during this six-year period of time, the people were being discipled. They were being taught about the Lord. And then ultimately what we read here is the beginning of this last part is that, is that they were being sent. They were being sent for the Lord. When disciples send. And we send people here too, into their homes, into their workplaces, into their communities. And, and, and even from our, our, our missions board, we have people who we've sent into all the outer parts of the earth. Why? So that they too, we too, whether we're here in what we're sent out to do or go into the ends of the earth, that we might also win, disciple, and send others as they share God's word too. And so the cycle continues over and over and over again as the church grows, as God's kingdom grows and God is glorified as we wait for his return and this is what we see taking place in the early church and hear this it's our model I would say it's even our goal for all that we do here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel in order that that the same fruit might be born that the word of God might be spread that others will hear and receive the gospel message and profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and be saved yes I'll say it from an eternity in hell because apart from Jesus Christ, there's no hope. There's no salvation. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no heaven apart from Jesus. And in light of this great persecution that came upon the other church, it's right for us to conclude. Please hear this. I, I, I understand, especially looking back upon this last year and so, what so many of you have shared that you've gone through and your suffering and your trials. And, and we must see that, that the early church, it's right to conclude that the pain and the difficult and the hard things of this life um, are real. And the pain and the difficult and the hard things that the early church went through, when we read back, they were horrific. There was great suffering. But we have to conclude in, right of, in light of that, that maybe this is God moving us out of our comfortable places. God was moving these men and women out of a comfortable place. And he scattered them. And maybe God's moving us out of our comfortable places. Maybe God's scattering us into a place where his work and will can be done through us better than what it is being done right now. And so with that being said, if anyone wants to be part of what God's doing here, it needs to be done in a way that fits in one of these three categories. Ask yourself, am I winning a person for the Lord? Am I discipling a person for the Lord? Am I somehow sending a person in the Lord in these ways? And by the way, I want to encourage you because... I know this, this all too familiarly in my own life, so I would encourage you, when, when you're in the midst of these times, in the midst of these, 
um, askings of yourself. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to be a part of? Don't listen to the lies of Satan who would want us to believe that we don't have what it takes to be a part of the process. He wants to discourage you and rip the carpet out from you and say, you're not qualified. Why would God use you? Look at what you've done. Look at who you are. Those are lies. That's not from God. Remember, Philip was an ordinary guy who loved Jesus. He waited tables. And he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that he was simply willing to do whatever God had asked him, even before he was sent out here to Samaria. And so God scattered Philip into Samaria. He planted him, and God produced much fruit for his kingdom through Philip as we read the story. And God will do the same things today for those of us who love him. For those of us who are available and willing to do whatever he, he asks. And, and, and we should remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, right? When he reminded them of how God chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, and the despised things of this world. So that God might be glorified as he does his work in us and through us. And so Philip, a man who was in love with Jesus and was able to do what he was, who was available to do whatever God wanted him to do. He went to Samaria. He fled Jerusalem, and his, and his going to Samaria was probably because, uh, this is opinion, and I don't do this very often, we don't know for sure, I think I'm right, you could think I'm wrong, that's fine, it's not really a huge um, salvation or, or doctrinal thing, but I think that Philip, in part, was chosen because he was one of these Hellenist believers, he was a man of good character, right? But I think as we look back to the conflict in the early church and the problems that rose up between the Hellenists and the, and the other believers there, I think he was a Hellenist believer that we talked about back when we were in chapter 6. And here's the reason why. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. And they were looked down upon by the devout Jews who held to the Hebrew customs and, 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 and to speaking the Hebrew language. And these same, social, these same kind of social prejudices that the, the, the Hellenists were... Um, receiving or were directed towards, were also directed towards the Samaritans when we read about them. They were looked down upon. They were despised by the devout Jews who were considered to be compromising half-breeds who corrupted the worship of the true God. That's a pretty accurate summary of what the Hebrew people thought about the Samaritans. And we know this in part uh, from the response that this woman, a Samaritan woman, had with Jesus when he came to Samaria. John chapter 4, 9, it says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's blown away that he would cross the line of these social prejudices and minister to her. He says, For Jews, she said, have, have no dealings with Samaritans. And it's Jewish history that really gives us a reason for that dislike between the Samaritans and and the, and, the, and, the, and the devout Jews. And you can look at 1 Kings chapter 17. I'll sum it up really quickly with going out into too many details. But we know that the nation of Israel had internal conflict under the reign of Solomon's son. And the nation was divided. It was never reunited. And you had Samaria and Judea. But in, spite of, in addition to the eternal, internal conflict that they had, we know when the Syrians attacked in 722, they took the, the, the Samaritan, the, the, the part of Samaria, the ten tribes of Israel and Samaria, they took them into captivity. They left a portion behind. They took the rich. They took the, the nobles. But the ones that were left behind, the Syrians took other pagan people and put them in that land, and they ultimately interbred. They intermixed. And so when the devout Jews came back, when the Babylonians attacked the Assyrians and sent the Hebrew people back into the land, 
the pure breed, if you will, of Hebrew, wouldn't let the Samaritans, uh, those who lived in Samaria, they wouldn't let them have anything to do with rebuilding the temple. Or when it was built, they said, you can't worship here. So the Samaritans said, we'll just build our own temple. And so this spiritual and, and political and societal conflict had been going on for years and years and years. And now Philip, a Greek-speaking Jew and a Christian outcast, if you will, out of Jerusalem, he had been sent out by God to the Samaritans to give the good news message of Jesus Christ. The first people group that we read about outside of Jerusalem and is that is a perfect picture of, of, of who Christ is. When Christ walked this earth, he went to the outcasts, the ones that nobody loved, nobody wanted to be around, the sick, the poor. The end result of this was great joy in Samaria. Debbie, if you and the worship team want to come up, I'm going to end with this. And, 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 and I want to talk about this joy as we close. And so great joy was in Samaria. Why? It's because the gospel message is good news, is it not? The, me- the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it's a good news message that brings forth joy. It's about Jesus who can bring the only true joy, and He gives an eternal joy, right? A joy that fills our heart, our soul, our mind, despite the circumstances that we might be going through in this life. He gives us a joy of knowing that we're going to heaven. That's pretty good news. (laughs) A joy that comes with being exceedingly and abundantly blessed by God because we've been adopted as children. A joy that comes from knowing that we've been accepted just the way we are because we put our faith in Jesus. That God looks at us through the lens of Jesus and says, accepted. A joy that comes from knowing that God will never leave you or forsake you. A joy in knowing that you've been given the free gift of God's grace and mercy and have been spared from the future judgment that is to come. A joy in knowing that all of your sins have been forgiven and forgotten. What does that mean? The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, God has graciously separated us from our sin, meaning from the debt of our sin, from the bondage of our sin, from the guilt of our sin. And ultimately a joy in knowing that God, through all of those things, ultimately that God unconditionally loves each and every one of us. And Father, thank you for your great love for us. Father, we love you. And give us the courage and the strength, Lord, to be bold to tell the world about you. Especially when there's so much opportunity this time of year to share of your love. In Jesus' name we pray.